You are listening to Shout for Libraries in Edmonton on CJSR. We are a group of library students at the University of Alberta who are interested in raising awareness about topics such as censorship, freedom of expression, and social responsibility. My name is Marin. I'm Michelle. And I'm Larissa McLeod. And we'll be your hosts for this half an hour of library-centric radio. Thanks for tuning in. On each episode of Shout for Libraries, we explore a different issue in library and information studies. Today, we're talking about free speech versus hate speech in librarianship. But first, we spoke to some of our incoming Library and Information Studies students and guests at the orientation. We wanted to know, why do you think libraries are still important? Let's have a listen to what they said. Oh, I think libraries are still important because there's more information than ever in the world and it has to be organized, disseminated, people don't know how to find it, there are people who are frightened of finding information, information costs money to find, and people don't have the, the resources to, on their own. Individually, in the library, we can be funded kind of through the municipality, you know, or something. It can just be shared more easily, and as a group, information is easier to find. We have a group of people organizing it and helping you access it is easier. Well, public libraries are important for general literacy uh, children's programs. I know in St. Albert, the Youth Center was recently shut down, so there's not a lot of youth programming aside from the library. I think they're important because they provide an essential need for the distribution of knowledge and free, free resources, especially for children um, and for people who don't, have, who don't have access to education. Um, I think that they're very important because they provide services to people that would not otherwise get them. Um, you see like a large amount of transient people at libraries getting help that, you know, maybe they would have to wait in the long lineup for at other locations where they get help. Um, it also provides just a, a positive setting to spend your time in. Not just as a, an idea, but as a physical space for people to get together and learn. I'm a, a big believer in the, the space itself being important. It's not just, yeah, not just the idea of it. I think they're still important because they still bring a sense of community to a certain space or area and they offer a place for people to come together as a group or individuals and to meet other people and interact with new things and just learn. I think it's very different, like making a connection face-to-face instead of just over the internet or like virtually, I think offers something special to that relationship. Um, not that internet communities aren't really important and they, they build a sense of community across, across boundaries, but I think that going to a place and being able to interact with people and books and physical objects reminds us like what a local community feels like. I think the key to libraries is their welcome environment for anyone to come in and find out about anything. I think when you when you go into a library, whether it's public academic or special library, whatever, um, and you, you interact with the staff about here's whatever is important to you, they get equally excited about whatever it is you're looking for. And so suddenly, instead of being very hesitant about whatever you're looking at, you, you suddenly get really, really excited. And you don't get that in a lot of other places. Um, Google doesn't do that. I think the experience of creating an, an actual book and doing your own research is very different from just <laughs> typing in something on Google. Then Google can give you a million different answers, whereas a library maybe gives you one that's more true than the others. 
Well, you mentioned what about Google? Not everybody has a computer, so libraries give access to a lot of people who don't have resources, and and, and also people who are new to uh, to the country, to Canadians. Like, to, they're a resource for learning English and uh, getting information and all kinds of things. It's a, it's a free service, right? Anyone can go to a library and access. I think it. librarians are still completely relevant for helping people navigate all the information and misinformation that's out there in the world. Uh, as our journalists and um, I think in all different sectors we see public libraries for example usage has not gone down people are still going to libraries they're still using library spaces so library access still completely important. There's a big push for everything to be digitized, which is great, but digitization takes a really long time and it is not keeping up with like what's being removed. And just being able to like sit down and have like a physical book sometimes, I feel you internalize it a little bit more. Speaking from the perspective of recently coming off of being a lawyer, libraries are very important. They're the only place to start research, generally speaking. I think they're a social equalizing force and I also think that it's important to have a place to come to get quality information rather than just go to Google. Well, okay, in a word, Trump. Um, <laughs> how about that? That was Show for Libraries' own Chris Joseph speaking with Dan Cocroft, Kim Fulton-Line, Raven Germain, Tara Gordon, Caitlin Grant, Gabriella Montagne, Kirk McLeod, Tabitha Plessick, Teresa Rawl, Michelle Terrace, and James Topolinski about why libraries are still important. A big thank you to the Library and Information Studies Student Association for inviting us to their orientation for interviews. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Shout for Libraries, a show about librarians and the issues that matter to them on CJSR. Let's get into the topic of hate speech versus free speech. I'm sure many of our listeners have seen how important the discussion about hate speech has become in the last few months. And boy, what an important topic it has been for libraries, too. Shuffer Library's own Kendra Cowley and Chris Joseph had a chance to speak with Dr. Tony Samick, an expert on the ethics of librarianship and the chair at the University of Alberta Library and Information Studies School, about the difficult negotiation between free speech and hate speech. We also had a chance to talk about some of the recent situations impacting public libraries in particular. We'd love to hear your thoughts, too. You can find us on Facebook at Shout for Libraries or on Twitter under Shout, the number four, Libraries. I've been working in expressive freedoms through the lens of our field for over two decades, well over two, almost three really. And I'm currently on the advisory board of Canada's Centre for Free Expressive Freedom. No, what I'm saying is called the Centre for Free Expression at Ryerson. I feel so privileged to be able to talk to you about this. So what can you tell us about the relationship between free speech and librarianship? In, in the Western context, as people have come up through LAS programs over the years in Canadian context, one would usually be referenced to the emergence of the Library Bill of Rights in the United States in the late 1930s as the first kind of on-the-books ideological position of that large association, which continues to be the oldest and largest library association in the world, and in a sense a big sister to what was the Canadian Library Association, and of course that dissolved and we have the Federation. 
But the uh, in the Canadian context, the Canadian Library Association actually put rhetoric on the books uh, at, in terms of a code of ethics and an intellectual freedom spa- statement in the 1970s. Um, and then if we want to look internationally, there's been work through IFLA, the International Federation of Library Associations and Institutions. And quite recently, in August 2012, they rolled out a code of ethics for librarians and other information workers. So at that umbrella international level, we've got a really nice umbrella code um, from five years ago. But any rhetoric that's gone on the books, whether it's the 30s, the 60s, the 70s, or five years ago, is rhetoric. And there's always a divide and a gap between rhetoric and reality. And typically, those kinds of documents are persuasion and consensus building. And so no association code of ethics is going to trump any library administration's work and cannot, you know, so an association, whether it's you know, IFLA, as an example, really has no authority to tell any particular library administration what to do. So there's a lot of persuasion and consensus building, but at the end of the day, law shows that employers trump. So there's advocacy in the field, and then there's the labor context in the employment market. And those things, um, I think, need to be revealed. So we in the field do a lot of talk around intellectual freedom and access to information, and um, sometimes we can't take it all the way that we want to. In talking about these scenarios and the people that we've spoken to about them so far, uh, one of the things that keeps coming up is, well, this is this is really hard. So <laughs> I'm sensing a tension between you know the rhetoric and the reality, whereas individual library workers, somebody who is in you know the collections office who has to make a decision about whether or not to purchase a specific item or to display it on a shelf uh, for an exhibit, would be at times caught between a code of ethics that they have said they would uphold or would believe in versus their boss. Well, there's, I think there's always ethical dilemmas between your personal ethical persuasions and professional. Um, they may not always align. And then we have the institutional position, and then we may have a larger piece of rhetoric from a national association or provincial group or even internationally. And those three pieces don't necessarily align. Um, And that's what produces the ethical dilemmas. And then we have conflicting values. We have intellectual freedom as a value. We have social responsibility as a value. We have diversity as a value. We have privacy and confidentiality as values. And to get those things to align on any given issue is extremely complicated. And I think that it all comes back to education. And so the best we can do is as people are coming up through LIS programs, whether it's at the undergraduate level, graduate level, or PhD, that they get the best world-class education possible in these issues because we're too quick to talk about our values without acknowledging that the the values collide. I always believe that you can't teach intellectual freedom without teaching social responsibility because all the hard stuff is in that space of the tension between the two. So in Canadian context, historically, by our law in a democracy, we would have the right to view the Muhammad cartoons. Some people may choose not to take up that right fully to the limit of the law. I mean, that's where the pocket is. So we we work within the framework of the law, but we also participate in law reform. My fear is that we don't work up to the line of the law, that we stop 10 yards before it because of fear of reprisal or because of defensiveness or because of just a lack of confidence. I mean, there's nothing worse than being kind of trigger-happy, defensive, because we're not secure in making an argument. And so the quality of education that folks coming up through the LAS programs receive is, is 
is really, really important in this area because you have to work from a position of confidence and not defensiveness. And if you're going to be proactive rather than reactive, you've got to know your stuff. So holding up a piece of paper or pointing to a link that has a code of ethics does not really help you when you have a microphone in your face, as I do now, not in my face, but, or, you know, you have a lobby group standing outside your institution or you're receiving a letter. And so you have to be able to work from that piece of paper or that link um, and contextualize it and make the connections. And you, I think you need to have courage if you have a mission statement that is about access and you don't honor it, you are running the risk of losing support. Um, you kind of alluded to this already based on your earlier comments, but where, where would you say the line is between free speech and hate speech? Well, the line is the limits of the law. So it's the criminal code. And, you know, it's the same issue with this obscenity. I think people off the cuff sort of say that's pornography and that's pornography. That, what they're pointing to may not actually meet the legal definition of obscenity. And people off the cuff may say that's hate speech, that's hate speech, but it may not... meet the legal definition. So we, I think we have to be very careful that we work to the limits of the law, which is basically for us the criminal code, and again, participate in law reform. So if we're not satisfied with the criminal code, if we think there needs to be law reform, then to engage in that. I wanted to ask about a couple of recent scenarios that have taken place in the context of public librarianship. So in the first one, uh, the Toronto Public Library defended a decision to allow a space booking at their library for a memorial service, which was held by a known white supremacist group for Ernst Zundel's lawyer, uh, Barbara Kalashka. What do you think there are the ethical implications for providing space to purveyors of hate speech? I, I currently serve as an advisory board member on Canada's quite new Centre for Free Expression. It's based at Ryerson University. We have a website online. Anybody can go look at it. And we're listed there who's on the board, and some of us participate in a blog. So I'll start, if I could, with a July 29th posting. And this is by Danielle McLaughlin, who's the former director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Union. And her blog um, from this date, July 29th, is titled Public Libraries and Freedom of Expression. So I'm just going to, everybody can go read it that may be listening. It's publicly accessible online. But let's, let me just say she speaks to, uh, of course, an issue we're familiar with, fewer than, uh, well, she poses the question, should we expect our public institutions to protect our freedom of expression? TPL made a controversial decision in July to permit a memorial to the late Barbara Kulaska. So I'll quote her, fewer than two dozen people attended the memorial. The Toronto Public Library's underlying principles are published online as follows. TPL's mission is to provide free and equitable access to services that meet the changing needs of Torontonians. The library preserves and promotes universal access to a broad range of human knowledge, experience, information, and ideas in a welcoming and supportive environment. The library establishes the rules of conduct to foster this environment for all users. The library is committed to applying the rules of conduct in a fair and equitable manner, both substantively and procedurally. She goes on to write, the TPL also makes clear that using their space does not imply that the library is giving its imprimatur to the purpose of the meeting any more than carrying a book implies approval of the book's contents. She then writes, we are the, uh, what are the expectations for those who rent library spaces? Under its terms of use, the library states that the use must be for a lawful, lawful purpose um, and under the rules of conduct... The uses must comply with the Ontario Human Rights Code 
For those who breach the rules, there are a list of possible suspensions and exclusions. Breaches of the rules can lead to a verbal as well as a written warning. Um, and she closes, Barbara K. gained fame or notoriety for her defense of such neo-Nazis as Mark Lemire and Ernst Sundel. And, and she, anyway, I'll just say she goes on from there, but I agree with her position. She closes with, I have two concerns about this event. I'll just share the first. The public should understand that public libraries are public. As such, libraries cannot use prior restraint when they decide who can use their facilities. We should all understand that once people have agreed to abide by the library's rules of conduct, the library is content neutral on what is said in that rental space. And she says, as city librarian Bowles said in a CBC interview, denying access to people based on their views not only contravenes the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the principles of intellectual freedom, but it also contravenes the cornerstone of the library's missions and values, which are publicly stated at TPL. So the other scenario we wanted to ask you about is related to uh, an exercise that one of our students uh, undertook over the course of the summer. And I'll let Jessie uh, talk about what she did. So this summer after Charlottesville, I there were a lot of articles around Holocaust denial literature and whether or not that stuff was appropriate. And then I had a discussion with a friend about every idea having, you know, merit in terms of intellectual freedom. There are a lot of countries where denying the Holocaust is illegal. It's not in Canada. It's not technically considered hate speech. But then I decided to look in Edmonton to see if any of our libraries have Holocaust denial literature. And none of them don't. The university doesn't and EPL. And none of them have it, which is what it is. So then EPL also has a suggestion an item feature. So I tried it with this one and I made sure it fell within all the rules. Like it was recently published. It was by a major publisher and the request was denied. Now, normally when you suggest an item and it's denied, they're like, well, no, we can't get it or it's too old or all these things. And that record still just stays there. But this book, which was, uh, did six, six million really die? It's gone from my account and I wasn't given an answer and it's not in my history. So I just thought it was very interesting. In your definition, when when does free speech become hate speech? Where's where's the line for you? Oh, that's a good question. That's one I th gotta think about. Well, I mean, I kind of want to go on to like left, or sorry, the right. I would say where say anything you want, do it everyone, as long as it doesn't hurt people. But the very nature of hate speech is that it's hurtful, and you know we can talk about current political culture about inclusive language and all these things and whether or not a word can have negative connotations to different people but that's also a very difficult concept because what could be a bad word to you is not necessarily the same for me the c word in australian culture perfectly fine in australia but you come to canada people will slap you in the face for saying it and so when your speech is starting to infringe on the rights of others or denying genocide i think that's that should be the line but it's also a hard topic because what's hurtful to me isn't hurtful to other people and are we allowed to infringe on their rights just because i'm uncomfortable with what they're saying yeah. or should we be policing language like that i don't know when it comes to the scenario of the memorial for, um, uh, for Ernst Zundel's lawyer, 
Uh, you could say, well, as long as you abide by the rules, you're not setting a fire in the room or And very windows. few people were there. <laughs> yeah, it's a very small event. You're fine. When it comes to a book, though, which is nothing but speech, there is mm -hmm. no, the book itself, thinking about uh, uh, Jesse's example of asking the Evanston Public Library why they don't have a copy of Did Six Million Really Die in their collection? Mm -hmm. And we know, even if you go to WorldCat and you look mm -hmm. it up, this is a book that is not commonly held mm -hmm. in public library mm -hmm. spaces for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, where is the line in terms of a collections management person, somebody right. who gets that request yeah. and says, yeah. well, it's just speech? The first thing you have to ask is, I mean, you have to look at the mission, the stated mission and rhetoric of the institution, and then you have to look at... Um, the collection policy and the specific criteria for selection and deselection. It may be legitimately that based on a particular collection policy, because not every library is going to collect everything, and what an academic library collects may be different than what a public library collects, may be different than what a school or government library collects. So I think you, you really have to analyze the, the rhetoric and then the collection policy and ask yourself, was there a case within the selection criteria that this should have been chosen? Or does it, it's not within the scope of this particular collection policy. Mm -hmm. um, I personally don't have an issue with something like Holocaust denial literature existing and being accessible in publicly funded institutions in Canada because I believe that it sheds light on an issue that is very, very real. And if we're going to address Holocaust denialism, we have to give people access to the literature itself for them to understand it. So shoving it under the rug doesn't really resolve the issue. But um, to be fair to any given library administration, judge whether or not they have something in the collection based on the scope of their collection policy and, um, and then challenge it. You know, challenge if something's in or challenge if it's out and let them go through that process. In the 1980s, EPL went through a huge and public case because it did hold Holocaust denial literature and it defended that position and it defended it really well. Yeah. Um, so unless and, you know, it takes certain education also, I think, to understand how to critique a collection policy, um, but it should be done. It should be done. Um, and I know myself from having worked in this area for a long time, a lot of people challenge something and they've never read it, viewed it, listened to it, or played with it. So the first question you go through in a challenge, if somebody's filing one, is, you know, on what page, in what part of this film, how many minutes in, or at what, what's the sequence in this song or in this video game, you know, what is the shot? Like, let's break it down. And then you're vetting, have you actually experienced this firsthand? Yeah. Or are you just jumping on with a, <laughs> a theme or lobby group or bandwagon? And you'd be surprised sometimes. Um, people may challenge something that they have not personally yet read, viewed, listened to, or played. Um, and I, so I think we do have a, we have a responsibility not to be divisive that it's us versus them. We, the librarians, on the right side of thinking and them the censors on the wrong side of thinking so that we would have a marketplace of only the right ideas. Um, so we have, we have a responsibility to take challenge into consideration and to respect that for the most part challenges come from people that fully believe they have a, an intention of social responsibility to protect somebody. Mm -hmm. And they believe that to be positive and we have to kind of respect that. Um, in principle, that a challenge is usually coming from a place of protection, and we have to engage professionally in that challenge and then break it down. But if they're wanting to challenge something they haven't directly experienced, then we go, okay, well, please go and read the book first, and then come and tell me if you still have a problem with it.
was Kendra Cowley and Chris Joseph speaking with Dr. Tony Samick. After a long day of navigating the sometimes blurry line between free speech and hate speech, we all need some time to curl up with a good book to relax and recharge. Luckily, Jesse Burgess, a student at the School of Library and Information Studies at the University of Alberta, has you covered with her review of Stranger in the Woods by Michael Finkel. The Stranger in the Woods by Michael Finkel, the extraordinary story of the last true hermit. This book, nonfiction, tells the incredibly true story of Christopher Knight, a man who in 1986 decided to abandon society, parked his car after driving up and down the east coast of the United States in Maine, and then he walked into the woods, never to be seen again for 27 years. During those 27 years in the forests of Maine, he terrorized a small lake town, Little Pond and Big Pond, and residents around the area were terrified. It became the status of legend, of myth. Was it real? Was it happening? Were people just forgetful? There are stories from residents in the lake town of how they would lock their cabins up and then come home and that new sleeping bag they bought would be gone, or their once full propane tank suddenly empty or just missing and no one really knew what was going on no one knew what was happening and all this time Christopher lived in the woods and stole which in turn he felt really guilty about there's brief transcripts from his trial where they're going through the list of items and it says khaki pants $24 and he pleads guilty. Christopher never liked stealing, but he didn't like stealing less than he didn't like being part of society. Um, some very interesting things that Christopher brings up in his letters to Michael Finkel, who's retelling the story, is that he never used fire. The smoke could be a way to track him from above or even from the ground. Someone could see the smoke and find him. He really only stole what he needed. Books, clothes, sleeping bags, food, propane, things like that. Um, And there's a story in the book once how a man tired of the thieving left a note on his door that said, please do not steal. I have a list of Leave me a list of what you need and I will bring it to you. No questions asked, but Christopher never took him up on it. Um, Once he was caught in 27 years, and I'm not going to tell you how, he spent time in prison and he's released and he's on parole and all of these things. The most interesting thing I think about Christopher's story is he talks about his scariest moment. So he lived in the woods in northern Maine. Winter, it gets cold, cold than the coldest you've ever felt. But he said the scariest thing was he was on a run home from back to his home from stealing, and he crossed the paths of two hikers. And he said this terrified him. Is he going to be caught? Is are they going to know who he is? Are are they going to be able to identify them? Are they going to be able to find him? And these hikers say they saw something. They're not sure what it was. It could have been a man. It could have been a bear. It could have been a deer. They just don't know. But they recounted this story saying, yes, they did see him. Now, there's an interesting quote from Christopher about 
why he did what he did. And the general answer is he's not sure, but he found life too loud. And even being in prison was too loud. Being near other people, just breathing, was irritating to Christopher. It's a very excellent book. Um, Christopher is a very interesting person in terms of who he is and what he did. And I greatly recommend reading it. So that's The Stranger in the Woods by Michael Finkel, The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit. That was our book recommendation from Jesse Burgess. If you are just tuning in, welcome to Shout for Libraries on CJSR. And that's it for today's show. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Tony Samick, and to all our contributors, including the students and guests we interviewed. A special thanks to Anoop Harihan, a.k.a. Anoop Scoop, who composed our theme music. We hope you enjoyed our exploration of free speech versus hate speech. We'd love to hear your thoughts, too. You can find us on Facebook at Shout for Libraries or on Twitter under Shout, the number four, Libraries. Once again, this has been Michelle and Larissa and Marin, and we have been your hosts for this half hour of Library-Centric Radio. Catch us on the next episode of Shout for Libraries. Mm-hmm.